Smith was my son coming up here. That was a lot of fun. All right. Well, I, I want to just start out by uh, saying how excited I am to be here. Uh, you know, it's always, it's always fun to be able to get up and share uh, from God's Word. And I love God's Word. Uh, you know, I've told several people in my life um, how much I love it. And, and one person that, I wasn't going to do this, but it's impromptu. Uh, one person that's really inspired me is Carl. And uh, how long he's been a disciple and how he loves to study the Word has been very inspiring to me. And uh, being discipled by him over the last few years now, um, I think that's the one biggest thing I've really gotten, the most I've gotten from him was my, my love of the Word. And uh, to give you guys an idea, uh, this is our uh, Relationship with God study series. This is the second one. Uh, Gordon started off, I guess, two or three weeks ago. And, and uh, there's a small group of guys that get together with Gordon, and, and we're getting together just to train about how to become a teacher. Because uh, Gordon does it so well, and clone him and have lots of Gordons. Um, but, you know, it's something that I, that I strive to be at some point in my life as a teacher uh, for God's Word. Because I love reading, I love studying, I love sharing. And so when we got together, we get together, and Gordon says he treats it kind of like a master's level divinity class, which he has taught before. And... He'll give us different assignments and topics and, you know, things that are controversial, things that are not controversial, and have people take opposite sides, even, that, even if that may not be your thing. And so we go through that. And then last year, Todd asked Gordon to help put together with our group a, a study series for the church. And they've done it in the north region, and they are about done with it in the east region, and then we started it here. And so I'm really excited about doing this. I think it's going to be a great opportunity just to learn more. It's really a foundation. Uh, the whole thing is about your relationship with God. I mean, if there's, if there's one thing that's important to, to grasp, it's our relationship with God. And each one of these topics will have like a main point. So it is that we're lost in sin and that God desires deeply to bring us into a personal relationship with him. And it has to be dual, right? A relationship goes both ways. It can't just be me. It can't just be God doing everything. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked in my marriage when it's all Erica giving the effort and I'm doing my thing. It doesn't work. And uh, I have messed up many times that way. And we're going to have a few different uh, scriptures that we go through. But when you think about it, When you think about your relationship with God, there's this whole sin problem. And so one of the things about teaching is I get to ask questions. And, you know, you guys can raise your hands or answer loudly, and we'll go through it. So when you think about the sin problem, what are some different ways to sin? Yeah, those, are good, those are the good uh, words we learned in our studies, right? Omission and commission. So... Other words, out, outward acts, our words, motives, hidden sins, thoughts and deeds. Great. You know, and that really when it, with all that, when you come to it, in first or 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about how judgment is reality. And there will be a judgment day. 
And what that can do is bring up fear. And a lot of people are highly motivated by fear. Growing up, this was a big motivation for me, was my own fear of God, my own fear in a bad way of, you know, the, the, the you know, almost an image of Zeus, like sitting on the throne with the lightning bolt looking, there, gotcha. And I was scared of my relationship with God. I was scared of what he would do to me if I was on the wrong side. And so there's this good fear and bad fear. And a lot of times, depending on how you grew up, we either don't have any fear or we have a bad fear. But a lot of it is really cultivating what is a good fear in our life and understanding what does that mean in our relationship with God. And one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is just the power that sin can have in our life and then how to get past that control that it can have. So we're going to start in Psalm 32, and we're going to talk about David. When you think about David and his sin, or not his sin, when it w- even, even before I said David and his sin, what are some things that you think about when you think of David, King David? Huh? Bathsheba, that's, that's a sin, right? What else do you think of of David? Murder. You know, if I wouldn't have talked about sin, you'd think he's a man after God's own heart, right? And you usually typically think of the good things first with David. So we're going to look at a couple of scriptures after his sin, after he allowed himself to commit adultery, murder, and things that we would not think of as a man after God's own heart. So the first verse is right here in Psalm 32. And if I give a little bit of context, even as you're reading this, this is before David confessed his sin. He's, he's writing how he felt. So he's writing it before he was confronted, before he confessed his sin and realized what he was and where he was at. And starting out, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So what are some of the effects that unconfessed sin has on us? Guilt. It weighs us down. Depression. It saps your strength. You guys, you know, I mean, those are such strong visuals. Right? They're, they're so powerful. It deceives you. I mean, there's this groaning in your heart. There's this, there's this, you know, you guys know that feeling like with that hand is heavy on you? Like you just can't even hardly get out of bed? That's what sin does. That's what we have fighting against us. That's what we have separating us 
from God. And when we think about that difference in our own, what we want to be, and then what we end up doing, and it can just feel like there's this pressure always on us, always, you know, just, you know what I mean? And and it comes out even emotionally, physically, whether it's exhaustion, you know, all these different things that, that might be different for me than they are for you. But we all struggle with them if we have this sin that's unconfessed. Look over in Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now to give you guys a bit of context too, this was written after he confessed. And there's a bit of a difference in how he presents his sin, how he talks about his sin. In verse 4 it says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see a difference in how he, how he acted? What are, some, what are some ways that here that show the complete li- completeness of David's repentance? Ownership? You know, do you think literally God was the only one he sinned against? I mean, you know, there's, there's this question, right? Maybe. I mean, it, it affected other people, right? You know, I had, I had this discussion about sin and what is sin. I love thinking about sin as anything, part, part of a definition of sin is anything that damages relationships. And it can be with people, it can be with spouses, it can be with siblings, it can be here in the body. Most of all, when we sin, we're damaging our relationship with God, because anything we do with each other, we're doing to God. And so, yes and no, he did he sin only to God? Because that's what it is. It's sin. When I sin and I talk angrily against to my wife, and I sin in my words. That's sinning against God. And that causes a different, you know, it's, it's in the moment, I don't think about me sinning against God. <laughs> I, so I keep doing it at times. And, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's not good. And I, I hope I've gotten better over time because when I come back to it, I think later, I'm like, I am sinning against God. Look down a couple verses in Psalm 51, verse 10. It says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew 
a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will treat I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. You know, what David is actually requesting for or in forgiveness and and he asked for that and he got forgiveness from God. But what was the result of that forgiveness? That's like a question you guys can say. To help others. To teach transgressors your ways. You know, it's, it's interesting, like, when you realize where you're at, and then when you get that, that renewed joy, that, you know, you got something back. You got that little share it, right? Like, when you're happy, you're talking, you know, you don't want to just, like, yeah, so I, I sinned the other day. I'm I'm better now. You know, it's it's a it's a shift in mindset. And there's a completeness in the repentance. And it's different. He became different when he got it out. When he got rid of it. When he shared what was in his heart. And then he transformed his heart. So we're going to see about how to do this in the New Testament, too, and how it talks about in the New Testament. Let's look over in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. It says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You guys ever feel like that? I mean, it's like when, I, when, I'm sin, when I've sinned, I know I've sinned, I messed up. And I'm laying in my bed, I'm like, I just feel done. I just feel dead. I feel lost, and I haven't gotten it out. I haven't been able to confess it. I haven't really repented, and I feel that deadness. It says, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the, com- the, com- the commander of the powers of the unseen world. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. I think I have a different version, but that's okay. So (coughs) when when you think about that type of attitude, that, that heart, What types of sins does it describe? What are the various ways that we can sin? Thoughts, great. Gratifying ourselves. I'm sorry? Our mouths, yeah. I mean, you know, we we know sin, right? You guys remember Galatians 5? A lot of us have read Galatians 5. You know, the acts of sinful nature are obvious. You know, it's not anything that's going to be a surprise. It's our mouth. It's like what I was talking about with Erica, where I can speak words. 
I can say things. I can have a bad attitude. I can be angry, open, and vulnerable. All of those, right? And then some. I'm not, t- I'm not even, I haven't even touched like the whole desires of the flesh, right? Whether it's purity, alcohol, whatever it might be. We all st- have all struggled with these things. We used to live in that way. We used to. But now we're different. Now we're called to something new. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, 
And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Pretty powerful, huh? Look over in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 again. Probably already there. Start in verse 4. So, you know, we just talked about sin and the power that sin can have over us if we decide to remain impure. And then in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, it says, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even... Though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life <clears throat> when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us, for all who are united with Christ Jesus. God has saved you by his grace when you believe. <clears throat> and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, 
so that none of us can boast about it. For we are things, for we are, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So when you think about it, what are just a couple of the benefits of salvation? Go to heaven. That's a, that's a big plus. You have hope, peace, forgiveness. You get to be close to God. You escape eternal death. Great. You know, something we didn't mention is you get to be part of family. Right? You were outsiders. And now you've been brought close. We get this opportunity to be brought in, to be united, to have something so powerful here. You know, when I think about, like, you know, one of the things I, I'm really grateful for is our youth ministry. I love our teens. I love seeing my son how he became a disciple and the, the young man he's turning into. And, you know, I, I hear different people and have heard different people talk about, like, I want my teens to have the same type of conversion I did. And I think if, I think if for, for those people that became disciples older, we have to be careful we're not bringing something worldly along with us. You know, because I think there's, there's this whole idea, and I can speak from being a kingdom kid and getting baptized when I was 15, you grow, and, and then if, if you're not realizing what salvation has given you, then you start, and you start letting different sin crowd your mind, then it starts opening up this door of curiosity, right? And what, one of the worst things about curiosity is that it's never satisfied. There's this never-ending spiral of things. What's the next? What's What am I going to do with? What can I do? You know what I'm saying? It's like there's this constant spiral. And if we, if we think about what we've got and the benefits that we've got, the family, the hope, the love, the honesty, the being real, the not having that heavy hand on you. It's so powerful seeing a young person 
become a disciple because they don't have that heavy hand on them the way some of us have. You know, it's, it's this how their, in, in verse 19, it says their destiny, and he's talking about people that live without Christ, says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is what we've got. We've got this hope. Think about God wanting a relationship with mankind. How do you know that's true? Because of Jesus? Because the Bible tells us so? Thank you, Jamie. (laughs) We're still here. You know, the Bible says it over and over and over and over and over and over. How he's desiring a relationship with us. Even when the first people fell, there was a plan. Because God wanted a relationship with us. We have this hope. We have this, this goodness of God that he gives to us individually. You know, I think about, like, even, even when I think about, like, what I have in my relationship with Erica, I'm so grateful for what God gives me. So many people in the world are literally killing themselves because they don't have what we have in the kingdom. I mean, you, you hear about it. There's, you guys know, even this year, there's been several very famous people that have killed themselves because they are unhappy. And we have that water to share. We have that living water that can fill that emptiness. And God just wants to give us that. You know, it's this, it's this relationship about individuals being saved that God has a broader purpose for our life. You know, and, and I think even on, on the next slide, you know, it talks about how we, we talk about how discipleship in our life is not just us and God. So it's not just vertical, you know, if you can think about the cross, but it's also horizontal. So when we have that, that living water in our life, we're connecting to God and we're connecting here. But it's not just here, right? It's not just this room. It's spreading out everywhere we go. And we get to share just a little bit of that righteousness with other people. <clears throat> you know, it's not just enough to do it in fellowship here, right? We have to bring it to our world. You know, if John 13, 34, and 35 is true, then what are we sharing in our life? You know, that's, that's more rhetorical for you guys. 
But people aren't just going to see love. They'll see some love here, but they'll see it in your life. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about seeing what God is going to do through us, how he's going to build us up, and how he's going to help us become more than what we are without him. So, our personal challenge is to make a list of all that God contributes to your salvation and what he expects from you in response to that gracious offer of forgiveness. And then pray about it. Ask him to help you to really absorb it and then share it with at least one other person in detail. Because I think we can kind of absorb these things and think about these things and think about, oh, it's just me and my personal relationship with God. But it's more. It's more than just that. And we have to respond to God's call for our life. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ben. And uh, I have the clock on because I can ramble. So I'm, my kid's going to school too. All right, so I have a lot to share. And there's a lot in this. And so I wanted to, I mean, I really do have a lot to share. But rather than go deep into all the pieces of that, I'm going to actually break it down and go for just making two main points. Two main points. And I'll address who it's for in just a second. But if for those who I don't address, if you want to hear what I have to share, I'll be right there when we're all done. All right. So prayerfully, Ben, um, his exegetical examination of the scriptures really touched your heart and mind um, in a way that makes you think about why you as an individual need a relationship with God. Because he, he spoke about it you know, for, for the world and in, in that high level. But we have to bring it back down to reality for us as individuals. And why do you, name, need a relationship with God? Well, for me, Ben, because just as that video, that video is awesome, and just as Ben you know, showed us, there's so much impurity. There's so much stain. So everyone on, on earth is in four states, as I see it. They're in four states in their relationship with God. The first one's really easy. They need a relationship with God, and they don't know it. That's the first state. The second state is you're establishing a relationship with God. And if you're establishing a relationship with God at the moment, I'm not going to give you a whole lot tonight. I'm sorry. I will over here if you need me. But the, sec the third state is that you're maintaining a relationship with God. And the last and final state, as I see it, this is my opinion of Ben, is that we're growing in our relationship with God. And those last two are what I'm really going to focus on. But I'll give you this piece if you're establishing it. It's simple. Read your Bible. And for Don Murray, I brought my, my original. This is my first Bible. I don't know if you guys remember that. He came up and talked about you got to have a Bible. I looked at this. 
And so the first Bible I bought, there's stuff I have in this that I don't get when I look at my little PDF of the NIV. There, there is something to this. I love having my Bible here. Trust me, I really do. There's something to this. All right. So maintaining. Here's the thing. If you're, if you're at that stage, and we all get to that stage at different times and places in our life and our growth in the Lord. But the thing about it, every man, woman, and child hits maintaining and stays there in the exact same way. And that's by continuing to do what you did to establish a relationship with God. You cannot maintain a relationship with God and not pray. And you cannot time. It is the most critical aspect about having a relationship with God. He wants your time. Someone once told me that children spell love, T-I-M-E. I think God does too. So some people move from establishing their relationship with God to maintaining kind of like um, how a wedding moves to the honeymoon. Some people, that honeymoon stage lasts for years. Some people, that honeymoon stage doesn't even get to the reception. Man, look how big your smile is. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> no, seriously, some people, the honeymoon doesn't even get to reception. It's over. You hit the waters of baptism, and life is on you full force. Others of us, I was one, it lasts a little while, and that's nice. Um, but how do we maintain it? We do what God does. We look at our relationship with God, and we see what he does, and we imitate. What does God do? God shows up. God keeps his word. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. It says in Psalms 33, 4, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. So we have that confidence that we would have in no other relationship that exists in this world. Because even with my wife, who's amazing, and my mom, who's amazing, and all my family here, Marty and Aaron, who I've known for 20 years, We don't have that type of confidence that we have in our Lord. So God's going to show up. He's going to do all those things. We must do it too. We stay faithful through obedience. That's Romans 1.5. We stay faithful through obedience, keeping that in mind. Oh, let me go back. I, I'm skipping stuff, so I missed a really critical point I want to share. Um, it's a biblical truth, and Ben was all over this. But absorbing the Bible will keep you from sin. Romans 14, 23, the second half says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So how do you get faith? Romans 10, 17 says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So in every point that I'm making this evening, that is the key underlying principle. That a relationship with God will keep you from sin, which is the very thing that keeps you from God. Okay. All right, now here's the hard part. We're growing. We want to grow in our relationship with God. And it is the hardest of all of them. It requires the most effort. It requires the most change, the, mo 